Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. This is our second podcast of fall semester 2021. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by our other co-director, Doug Weatherford. Welcome, Doug. Hi, great to be here. It seems like you're always on the podcast here. <laughs> you're your host a, a and guest sometimes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun being guest. For sure. Um, so today we'll be looking forward to our first of our weekly themes, which is Ennio Morricone Around the World, in which we'll be screening films that feature soundtracks by Morricone, who died just last year in 2020, right? Right. And uh, this was uh, one of the themes that I really wanted to do. This has been one of your uh, pet projects. Here. <laughs> it, it perhaps would have been, uh, you know, more timely to do it last semester. But now that we're back live and can see uh, some of these films on the big screen, I think this is a great time. Yeah. And uh, Ennio Morricone is just such a big figure that he deserves an homage. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we're doing this at IC. Well, great. Yeah. And it allows us to talk about audio and, and soundtrack as well. So. We'll be featuring the films The Mission from 1996, Once Upon a Time in the West, 1968, and Cinema Paradiso from 1988. Well, why don't we start with Morricone himself? Maybe talk a little bit about his importance in film history. <laughs> yeah, I, it's hard to overstate, right, how important Ennio Morricone is. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is to, you know, en enlighten people who don't know who uh, this individual is, because everybody's heard something that he has done. Of course, he's an Italian film director and has numerous scores to his name, including over 400 uh, scores uh, written for film and television. And so he's just kind of a master. Prolific. Yeah. Very prolific. And uh, when he died in 2020, July 2020, I think that the cinematic world lost somebody really important that we'll be talking about for generations to come. Yeah, no, you know, his film, The Mission is one that I remember. And I remember it mainly because of that soundtrack, that beautiful soundtrack that, you know, just kind of sticks with you. Talk a little bit about the historical context of, of The Mission, just introduce that for our audience Yeah, so uh, The Mission is a really good film, and I, I've uh, noticed that a number of people are very excited that we're showing it uh, uh, this semester at International Cinema. And it is one of those films that uh, I, I think people can approach it and like it for a number of reasons. And of course, uh, we chose it in large measure because it's one of the most iconic scores by Ennio Morricone. And what we were trying to do in coming up with, uh, you know, a week on Ennio Morricone is give some uh, diverse international context to his compositions in film and the mission certainly does that the film is in english but it also has uh, bits and pieces of other languages including uh, spanish and latin and guarani and uh, I, i'm thrilled i'll just real quickly mention about the guarani uh, that we are also this semester trying to highlight indigenous languages around in the americas and so later on in the semester we'll have uh, a series of films that will deal specifically with indigenous perspectives But we will have another film that is actually called Guarani, and it is an indigenous language down in the Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil area, uh, a region uh, known today as the Missions, Las Misiones, right? And so if you've never heard uh, Guarani before, this is a great opportunity to do that with this film. 
home. And just so that you know, uh, Guarani is the second official language of Paraguay. Mm. So it's not a, an indigenous language that has disappeared. It's one that, despite conquest and colonization, has uh, remained and is is frequently heard. Missionaries that go to Paraguay today typically will frequently learn both Spanish and Guarani. The historical context, so that is one of the reasons why people will likely want to see the film is because it is based in actual events in South America. In 1750 is kind of the, the contemporary moment of the film, although the film does conflate you know, that particular moment and then about uh, 15 years later when the Jesuit order of the Catholic Church is finally expelled from South America. So in some ways, it perhaps, uh, you know, conflates about a 15-year period. But the Jesuits had come to the South American continent uh, later than some of the other Catholic orders and uh, started to create what are called uh, reducciones, which are missions, right, in, in many ways in a, in a positive idealistic a way you might imagine, as the film does, that the Jesuits are out to help to help the Guarani Indians to flourish in this part of South America. There is, of course, a, a more negative perspective that we could take. But the Jesuits do kind of come between some of the power plays that are going on in South America, between Portugal and Spain and the Catholic Church. And they make a lot of enemies in Europe and uh, throughout South America and will eventually be expelled from all of the Americas. And that's kind of what this film tries to show Mm. is this particular moment in which uh, something imagined, perhaps a utopic vision of what could have been Mm. is lost. Is that is that related in the music? Um, talk about the connection between the soundtrack and, and the representation of the historical yeah. moment. So those of us who are interested in kind of the representation of history, as I certainly am, are always kind of interested in the ways that the real and the imagined combine in how we talk about the past. And uh, The Mission is one of those movies that that starts with a, a real moment in history but quickly becomes perhaps a, a mythified, idealized representation of the past. And like I say, you know, this uh, utopic vision that all of a sudden falls apart. And I think that one of the really fun things about this film is the way music is used to create that imagined idea mm-hmm. of, uh, of the Americas. And it is Ennio Morricone. I mean, you go to this film and you will love the splendor of the scenes, the uh, amazing moment of uh, this historical period. You'll feel the terror of uh, the things that are happening to an indigenous civilization at that moment. And of course, what will continue to happen for hundreds of years more. But it's also a film that you might go to just to see how the soundtrack helps to tell that historical moment Mm. and helps to create this idea of a mythic moment. And uh, wow, his music is really good. And you've probably all heard it, even if you don't immediately connect it to the film, but you will recognize uh, Ennio Morricone's score. Great. Well, we turn to the Wild West and Once Upon a Time in the West with Great Spaghetti Western, directed by Sergio Leone. How is he connected to Morricone? 
Yeah, so it's a really interesting connection, and a lot of people today won't imagine Sergio Leone without Ennio Morricone and vice versa, right? They, it's one of those magical pairings in film history, music history as well, uh, that just works really, really well. And of course, uh, Sergio Leone is an Italian director who is famous for many, many films, but in particular for uh, his spaghetti westerns that imagine the American West, perhaps from an international perspective. Mm. And he very early on in his uh, attempt to tell stories about the West enlisted the efforts of Ennio Morricone. And so those who have uh, seen, you know, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, for example, the trilogy of the dollar trilogy with uh, Clint Eastwood will recognize those sound moments. And, and certainly those soundtracks that Ennio Morricone created that are paired with this kind of exaggerated, dramatic, international view of what the American West is put its imprint on the American West, especially in you know the 60s and 70s. And it's hard, at least for me, to imagine the Western without the Spaghetti Western. And it's called a Spaghetti Western, of course, because there was an intervention by a number of Italian filmmakers and directors, Ennio Morricone being, of course, the most well-known. And so it became Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, one interesting fact, of course, is that many of the Spaghetti Westerns, although directed often composed by Italian participants, were often filmed actually in Spain. Yeah. And, uh, and Spain became Southern Spain, uh, which has a, a geography that at least is somewhat similar to the American West, became a frequent spot for filming Westerns in this time period. Yeah, it's interesting that this quintessential American genre is really something that's more of an international project, right? Yeah, and you know, I, I, I've seen a few people, as I mentioned, that we were going to be showing Once Upon a Time in the West, you know, kind of you know, get a, a inquisitive <laughs> look on their faces with how is that international cinema? Right, right. And uh, I've explained at least a couple of times that there are few productions more international than a film like Once Upon a Time in the West that, of course, has Ennio Morricone and Sergio Leone as director and composer. It's filmed largely in Spain, in southern Spain, has actors from all over the world, including Italian actors, American actors, Charles Bronson, uh, Henry Fonda are, are in this film, for example. So many of the characters' voices are dubbed uh, into English or the various languages that they have. And a portion of the film also is, is shot in Monument Valley, a very, very small portion. Small part of it, um, yeah. yeah, but so you've got, you know, Monument Valley, Utah, Arizona, you've got Spain, you've got Italy, and you've got this real blending I think of uh, of international characters, all dedicated to telling a story of a romanticized image of what the American West was. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it's a perfect film for international cinema, and it's a lot of fun to watch. I would imagine, Mark, you may know better than I that it's probably one of the few films dubbed that has ever shown at international cinema. That's a good question. I think we, I'm trying to remember if we have uh, shown anything dubbed before, but I think it probably is one of the few that we do because it's such an unusual thing, right, to show a dubbed film in that way. But yeah. so shots in Italian? Well, some of the characters, of course, speaking, speaking Italian in a different language. Okay. And, uh, and but and dubbed into English. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously, you know, Charles Bronson, Henry Fonda are, they actually Speaking will go back English. and re-record their own voices, uh, uh, but there's this international cast 
where some of the characters have to be dubbed. And of course, we don't like dubbing. <laughs> I see we like the original languages. With, In this um, situation, it, may, it does make sense, though, right? That we're moving yeah. from a different language into, yeah. into English. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting that audiences don't seem to mind the fact that you have, you know, this quintessentially American genre about the West shot in Spain by an Italian director, you know, and and it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of some of the um, the ways in which we get some of these classically trained British actors and Australian actors who come and they play some of these roles that seem to be right for American actors, right? And 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 kind of the, the cultural experience of growing up in America, but nevertheless. So there, there is that kind of, and it goes back as far as this genre. And it's interesting to see that the American audience have really been kind of gotten used to this idea, right? That it, the illusion of filmmaking doesn't necessarily have to be centered American, be American made, right? To really be something that's a depiction of it. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I really like about the Spaghetti Western is that it really emphasizes the fact that the American West is an international place, or at least it's a multicultural place. Mm. I teach a class that's called uh, border crossings or filmic connections between Mexico and the United States. And I look at uh, filmmakers from the United States who cross the border into Mexico to make films and vice versa. And uh, one of the films that I show in that class is for Apache, which is 20 years earlier than this one, 1948. And it's received some criticism occasionally for the ways in which it imagines the other indigenous characters within the film. And there's, of course, some Mexican characters as well in the film. But I have always shown the film and uh, had fun with my students looking at the ways in which the film is actually quite progressive for its time. Mm. Uh, The director is John Ford, who is a really important influence on Sergio Leone. And Ford, of course, was of Irish immigrant stock. And so within the film, there are Irish characters, there's Scottish characters, there's uh, characters who is half Mexican, half North American. Uh, the actor who plays that character is Pedro Armendariz, one of the great leading men of Mexican cinema who spoke fluent English. We have uh, a Mexican actor by the name of Miguel Inclán, who plays Cochise, mm-hmm. right? So a Mexican playing a Native American character. But within this kind of really interesting multicultural environment that is the film Ford Apache, Mm. John Ford is questioning who really owns the West? Whose West is it? And it's not just a part of the North American identity. Within that film, you have the two Mexican characters, Pedro Armendariz and Miguel Inclán, one who's playing a North American soldier, one who's playing Cochise, an Apache Indian leader who speak in Spanish, who speak together in Spanish. And it's always fun to ask my students, right? I mean, is this the actual language that they would have spoken? And yes, it's actually accurate Mm. because of course, long before the American cowboys entered into this region of Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and whatnot, of course, Spanish Settlers had arrived in the early 1600s into what is the area around Santa Fe. And so Navajo Apache Indians would have spoken Spanish long before they would have imagined speaking English. And I I use that example of Fort Apache to get back to Once Upon a Time in the West, because I think Once Upon a Time in the West is also trying to imagine this unique and multicultural space. And uh, what better way to do that than from a multicultural cast that includes North American and uh, Italian and Spanish geographies and characters and what have you. So it's a really fun movie. Yeah. Talk, Doug, about the first 15 minutes of the film, because, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the significance of sound and Morricone, but 
this film in some ways is notable for that first 15 minutes of, of really not having sound, right? Yeah. Talk about the significance of that and also the end of the film and how they relate. Yeah, so I was, I was talking with uh, uh, my uh, ICS 290R International Cinema Seminar class uh, recently, and I mentioned to somebody that, you know, the first 15 and the last 15 minutes of that film will change you as a film viewer. <laughs> and the first 15 minutes about has no non-diegetic sound, right? Or in other words, there's no soundtrack accompanying it. All of the sounds are sounds that uh, are, are part of the geography of this uh, train station where three assassins have shown up waiting for a train that will be, that will bring Charles Bronson, right. And they're hoping to kill him. And so for 15 minutes, there's just this play on a stasis, you know, just a lack of movement, a lack of dialogue, a lack of action, but the, the sounds, the diegetic sounds, right. Of the windmill that turns and the train when it finally arrives and the boots. Somebody's shaving, I think, right. Somebody's too. Yeah, shaving. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just so beautiful, yeah. but it's so slow. Yeah. And I, I think that what Leone is trying to do is to tell us to, you know, stop trying to get so quickly to the action. Hmm. Right. That this is not a film and the best Westerns are not films about action. Yeah. They're not films about dialogue. They're films about space and place and sound and and ritual. Right. The ritual, perhaps, that leads up to the mm. action sequences that we're going to find. When the film came out, it's from 1968, when, it film, when the film came out, it was received really well in Europe, especially France, but very poorly in the United States. It's become known as perhaps one of the best films ever made, mm. uh, one of the best Westerns, certainly. But a Time Magazine uh, article was, was titled, Tedium in the Tumbleweeds, <laughs> right? And so uh, a lot of uh, North American audiences just didn't deal well with the fact that this is a movie that has a really slow pace. And if you've never, I mean, if you go to see the movies because you want to hear what people are going to say and see what they're going to do, this movie tells you the movies are about more than that. And so the first 15 minutes in which there's no dialogue is just absolutely beautiful. I sit there and watch those first 15 minutes and just abject awe, right? I'm so amazed by the closest, by the shots, by the cinematography, by the geography, by the choreography that is the placement and movement of the characters on the screen. The last 15 minutes, in, in especially the, the final gun battle between two of the primary protagonists played by Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson, is a dance. Mm. I mean, it's a choreography. There's very little movement in it. But the soundtrack, now we do have soundtrack, and it's by Ennio Morricone, and it is one of the most spectacular uh, sequences that you will ever see. And it's not really about the ultimate gunfight. Hmm. It's about the moments leading up to the gunfight and the posing between these two characters. And I'm telling you, it's a long film, <laughs> two hours, 45 minutes. It's a long film. <laughs> it is worth every moment. And especially the first 15, last 15 minutes. What a delight. Yeah. The great director, um, John Wu from uh, the Hong Kong tradition, I think, uh, pays homage to this to this film in particular, um, and some of the choreography and his fight sequences, where where characters shoot at each other, but there's kind of this balletic thing going on where it's more of a dance than it is a, a fight. So really great stuff. So check out some of Morricone's best work on display at International Cinema this week. 
there will be no tedium in the tumbleweeds, I'm sure. <laughs> no tedium. There is no, no tedium, tedium for sure, film. right? You know, come and enjoy. Uh, yeah. it's uh, uh, We have three great films uh, featuring Mordecone's soundtrack playing this week. Uh, we look forward to those. Uh, make sure when you come to 250 The Kimball Tower to wear a mask. And a reminder, if you're a student at BYU, uh, consider minoring in international cinema or taking our international cinema course, ICS290R. Uh, you can find more details on our website at ic.byu.edu. Well, thanks, Doug. That was a really great conversation. Oh, Looking forward to these films. You bet. And I hope people will go and see these films. Uh, even though they're long, they're worth every minute of it. They sure are. Well, thanks to you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Devin Glenn, and our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded music for the podcast. Until next time, see you in the Kimball Tower. Thank you.